Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hi, I'm Steve Nichols, president of Reformation Bible College. We follow timeless paths of wisdom and truth, engaging the classic texts of history, literature, and theology. We care about training thoughtful and articulate Christian men and women, and we believe that a distinctly classical education lays the groundwork to thrive in society for God's glory. I'm excited to announce to you the launch of our online Foundation Year program, and it could not come at a better time. With this certificate in theology, you can build a firm foundation to take with you into whatever vocation you end up pursuing. In this carefully designed online classroom experience, you will engage with professors and classmates in real time, and you can do this from wherever you are. Apply today to invest in an affordable education that will serve you for a lifetime. Please visit us at reformationbiblecollege.org online. Welcome back to the Forma podcast from the Searcy Institute Podcast Network, a podcast about the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture and the audio companion to Forma Journal. I'm Heidi White, and in this episode, I speak with special guests, Dale Grote and Wes Callahan. Dale, did I say your name properly? You did. Perfect. Thank you. I didn't know if there was like an accent in there, some kind of thing. All right. Phew. Well, Dr. Dale Grote completed his PhD in classical studies in 1988 at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His initial teaching position at Berea College in Kentucky inspired him to write his first book, a real zinger called A Comprehensive Guide to Wheelock's Latin, uh, bestseller, I'm sure, yeah. um, amongst Latin scholars. Uh, and uh, around that time, in a marvelous and circuitous way, he came into contact with Wes Callahan, whose homeschooling group, Scola Tutorials, used it as a standard text, and everybody studying Latin absolutely should do that. So, Wes mm-hmm. is a wise man. 
Uh, Dale has followed the path of a tenure-line professor of classical studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte uh, by publishing occasionally on academic topics and by teaching the full spread of classical-related courses to undergraduates and graduate students. He takes particular pride, this is my favorite part, by the way, uh, in never having stooped to teach med-tech vocab to a mass <laughs> class. Okay, so pause. That's and tell me about that. How did That's you avoid it? What is I it said, and no. how did you avoid it? Yeah. Well, you know what it is. You stand up there and say, okay, here's the word for a worm. Here's the word for an intestine. And so here's the word for uh, worms in your intestine. <laughs> and, and you then, avoided and the that. Quiz. That's so, really good. Yeah, well, it, yeah it, it is. And, and it really is a cash cow for classics professors, mm-hmm. you know, because we can get 400 students in there and bore them with impunity. But, the, <laughs> but, but then the deans smile on us because we're delivering so much content. But no, no, I never had to do it. So well done, sir. Uh, Dale has led over 25 academic tours to Greece and Turkey with his students and at least 15 with Wes Callahan and his students. And most recently, Dr. Grote has translated the New Testament book of Acts into Latin. And that's what we're going to talk about today, that project. Uh, the Circe Institute, which is the parent organization of Forma Journal, is releasing Dr. Grote's newest book, The Acts of the Apostles, a Latin Reader, translated and introduced by Dr. Dale Grote. Uh, this is a remarkable resources for schools, classrooms, home educators, and Latin enthusiasts. And we at the Circe Institute are so honored to be a part of bringing this project to life. Uh, Dr. Grote's hobbies are repairing small engines and strumming the guitar. And I'd like to take a detour into talking more about that at some point. Uh, Please feel free to weave that into the conversation. Uh, He attends a nearby Presbyterian church and resides in Charlotte near his three daughters. So, Dale, thank you so much for being here with us Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Let me just issue one slight disclaimer. I didn't translate the book of Acts into Latin. That would be something that Jerome would have to do, right? I just used the Latin text and then prepared the book based on the Latin text that is out there and designed it as a reader. Perfect. Thank you so much for clarifying that. No problem. All right. And Wes Callahan, who's well-known and beloved at Forma Journal, uh, has been teaching history and the great books for over 35 years, including a number of years in private schools and colleges, and for the past 23 years through his online service, Scola Classical Tutorials. Uh, He's the main lecturer in the old Western Culture video series produced by Roman Roads Media. He and his wife of 40 years live on a 350-acre farm in northern Idaho, near his parents and four of his six married children and 11 of his 15 grandchildren. Uh, Besides teaching and farming, he loves reading, blues music, making the best barbecue in the county, more on that later, and helping Dale Grote lead tours of Greece. So Dale and Wes, thank you so much for being here today. It's a real honor. It's a pleasure to be with you. Glad to do it. Well, I'm expecting great things from this episode. So off the air, we've been emailing back and forth, and I have discovered that the two of you are really fun, and (laughs) it's not always the first adjective that some folks might spring to mind to folks uh, describing Latin scholars in the contemporary world. But nevertheless, here we are. You've got one podcast host and two fun guys who can converse in ancient tongues, so... So first off, gentlemen, tell us how you know each other. How did you meet? What have you done together over the years? And maybe share 
a story or two of your travels. And Wes, I'm going to put this one over to you first. Well, I'll start off with the way the way I remember it, and uh, <clears throat> Dale may clarify my memory, but the way I remember it is sometime in the uh, earlier mid-2000s, I emailed him because I'd been teaching Latin online for quite a long time using Wheelock's Latin and using Dale's study guide, uh, which I found immensely useful because, um, as everybody knows, the knowledge that uh, the beginning Latin students come into Latin classes with about uh, English grammar, which is necessary for knowing the terminology uh, that you need to know to study Latin, well, it was, uh, it was, it was on the wane. And I think it's just been getting worse over time. That's my impression anyway. So I found the study guide very useful. And uh, for some reason or other, I don't remember why, I emailed Dale and email conversations and probably phone calls shortly after. We started talking about a wide variety of things and found out he was leading tours to Greece. And we said, hey, what about it? And went from there. All right, Dale, is that what you remember? Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that's it. And I, one thing I remember is that it is definitely buried in the murky past. Um, <laughs> uh, it's up for future historians and biographers to sort this out when they write our stories. Uh, but yeah, I, I do remember that. And my, my um, text on Wheelock's Latin was first posted online as a series of PDF files, which were downloadable from, you know, a really primitive site. You're too young to remember the 90s, and that's when they were first going up there. And you could download them, and Wes had downloaded my notes. Well, it turned out I had also downloaded something that Wes had posted about Wheelock, and that was the answer key. Hmm. <laughs> do, you, do you remember that? I, yeah. I remember this story, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but the answer key, of course, has been declared illegal and it's gone. I, I can't find it anywhere. <laughs> uh, neither can anyone else. But yeah, I think that was the impetus for first getting in touch with each other. And then, then we started talking, and we mentioned the Greece tours and um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Our first one was like 2000, 2005 or six. Yeah. That 2005, I think. Anyway, yeah. I, let me, let me just add to that, to that one story. Uh, I was, uh, because I had made freely available Dale's material and included the answer key and so on. I started getting hostile emails from professors around the country. I can't believe that you have the temerity to publish the answer key. Students are cheating off it. And, uh, um, and so I, email, I emailed Rick LaFleur, who was the editor of the Wheelocks, and I said, you know, um, you know, hey, Rick, what about that? He said, I don't want to worry about it. It's not your problem. It's the, it's your problem. So, I, you know, so I blithely ignored the hostile emails. Good for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I also posted the, the answer key for a while, and, and I got hostile emails. You know, and, I, and I wrote back and I said, well, look, if you're teaching nothing but just translating the sentences, you deserve it. Right? Because that's not teaching Latin. To, to boost a translation, you know, and then and, and they didn't write back, but so. <laughs> Caught. Yeah. Caught in there. They're I had a number of students, uh, um, I had, I had a, a former student of mine who'd gone through my, my, my Latin course using Wheelocks and so on, and she went to, uh, to Baylor. And I, and I love Baylor, so this story is not meant in any way to denigrate Baylor University. But when she went there, she, she majored in classics and did graduate work in classics. And uh, it turned out a number of students there had been cheating using my stuff. And so the, the classics department, here's how I remember the story. I might, this might be entirely apocryphal, but I think this was something that this happened. The classics department got the computer department to ban my website. So I made a t-shirt that said banned from Baylor. And that's my claim to fame. Awesome. <laughs> banned from oh, Baylor. That is quite a claim to fame. I think you should work that into your Banned at Baylor. 
<laughs> you have to do something pretty big time. <laughs> well, I feel I feel really inadequate now, Wes. I haven't been banned anywhere yet. <laughs> I haven't either. Maybe Wes, I have so much to learn. <laughs> All right. So, has there ever been a time that the two of you have had a private conversation in an ancient language in order to exclude anybody present? Have you told any secrets? <laughs> we just lower our voices in English. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like yeah, the rest I, of us. I expected more. <laughs> yeah, aside no, from our normal incoherence, no, what, what we do to keep people from listening is just bore them to death. <laughs> so that, pretty soon they stop listening, and then we can say anything we want. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, Heidi. I, I have to say, uh, you somewhat overstated the case in the beginning when you said we converse in languages. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just not that good. Um, but that's why I like hanging around Dale because you know. I, um, He's uh, one of these men like my father. Whenever they open their mouths, I feel stupid. Um, that's the real reason I hang around Dale. That's hilarious. That's, no, that's not true. You know, yeah. he, he's, he is, okay, he's good. Okay, I'll tell you, Wes, we, we did these tours, right? And we're going to get to talking about our tours. Well, when we would go to Istanbul, we used to go to Istanbul in the Hagia Sophia. We would go up to the second floor and there was an inscription, a little name of what was it? Dotano? I see. I can't even remember the name. There was an inscription of one of the Vikings that visited there. Right. Right. And Wes, every time he's there, he tells this wonderful story about how the Vikings came down the Bosphorus and set up shop and did this, that, and the other thing and met all the emperors and, and this. And I've listened to that about six times and I still can't remember anything about it. <laughs> all I know is when I listen to it, I'm fascinated. So Wes has got this, this uh, narrative sort of historical sense. He can tell stories that are very compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wish I had that kind of a memory. Well, you sounds like you guys like each other a lot. Oh, yeah. And I think we compliment, each other. We, we, we compliment each other on the tours yeah, very well yeah. uh, because I'll, I'll start laying my thing. You know, I'll talk, okay, this rock over here, let's take a look at what's underneath it. And then, right. and then when their eyes starting to glass over, then Wes picks up and, and tells a story. <laughs> and it's a wonderful story that usually involves a Viking. Yeah. Yeah, oh, once yeah. Again, yeah, once again, Dale is misrepresenting himself. He, he tells <laughs> wonderful stories. And many of the stories I tell are stories I picked up from him over the years when we're up at, at the Temple of Hera. And he tells this story or, um, he'll, you know, the story about, um, <clears throat> how the, the defenders on the Acropolis sent ammo to the attackers because they wanted to preserve the monuments. And uh, I, I've learned a tremendous amount out of which I can, you know, um, um, uh, regale my students. Uh, Dale's really been one of my, one of the true sources of my knowledge of the history of the you know, classical world and the time in between the classical world and the modern age. Mm-hmm. Heidi, you're going to have a hard time with this interview because we insist on complimenting each other by starting off with an insult. <laughs> That's you know, right. Oh, no, no, Wes is completely wrong about this. Oh, no, Dale, Dale's memory is faulty. That's right. All of the compliments, all the one-upping compliments. No, you're well, yeah, better we're one-up than me. <laughs> all right. So we are here to talk about the Acts of the Apostles Latin. Yeah. So first yeah. off, let's, you know, define our terms since we're all classicists here. Uh, Dale, what is a Latin reader? Well, I'll tell you how the the whole idea came up. I mean, a Latin reader, for me at least, the definition is a transitional reader that gets students who've been taking a year or a year and a half, two years of introductory Latin, and then are ready to start reading some real authors. And that jump is sometimes insurmountable for for students, and it breaks their hearts. They get into some 
they say, finally, I'm ready to read Lucretius. And then they start reading Lucretius and their heads are swimming. The vocabulary is coming from all over the place and they can't make sense out of it. And so what uh, um, an author will do is say, okay, here's the text and here's some vocabulary to help you. And here's some grammatical notes to help you out there. And so that's what a, a reader is. It's also called a school text. It used to be called a school text in the 19th century, in the early part of the 20th century. And they're, they're available for most of the standard authors, uh, sometimes just in excerpts and sometimes complete works. Uh, Plato, for example, a lot of his dialogues have school editions to help navigate that, that jump between introductory language and intermediate or even advanced Mm. Uh, language. So that's that's what it is. And tell now, us about the genesis of this particular project. How did it well, come it, about, and why the book of Acts? Well, it was it was uh, the inspiration and the genesis was born like all projects like this out of irritation. And when I was teaching Latin, uh, when, when I teach Latin, the first year, of course, they get they get through it, and then they go into the second the second year, at least the college level. You're in the second year, and they were being asked to read, you know, according to the standard curriculum, really challenging authors. Even Caesar uh, is challenging. And sometimes the third semester or the first author that they read in intermediate Latin is um, Caesar, which is, can be very, very difficult. So I began looking around for real Latin that students could read and understand about an important issue uh, that would sort of allow them to leverage their first year or first two years of Latin into some real reading. And then by reading real Latin, you can develop some confidence and the, the grammar starts to become less opaque and you get some experience navigating sentences. You have that thrill of accomplishment. And so I thought, well, the easiest place to go would be Vulgate Latin or Biblical Latin. Mm. And I looked all over the place and I could not find a single text Latin text for intermediate students based on biblical Latin mm -hmm. anywhere. And uh, I think I even said, well, uh, and in my introduction, sometimes I can go back to the 19th century and those scholars and they wrote school texts about everything, but there was nothing, hmm. nothing about uh, biblical Latin. So I said, well, I'm going to fix that. And so I published a book with uh, Bocchese Carducci on uh, the Latin of Mark with the synoptic parallels. And so I'd give a passage of Mark in Latin, and then I would have the parallel passages from Matthew and Luke so that they could you know, read the Mark and then they would have a variation of it so that they could build some confidence because they've seen a lot of that before in the, in the passage of Mark. So that was uh, published there. Then I said, well, this, this is good, but it doesn't tell the whole story. And so I started immediately on the book of Acts. And so that's what, that's what this is. It, it, and again, it was born out of just disbelief mm. that no one had done this before. Mm. I mean, mm. it's perfectly good Latin. And you know, one of the crimes is that a lot of my students at the college level, they don't go beyond their first reading. You know, mm. they'll take introductory Latin and then they'll have one semester, or maybe two at the most of doing some actual reading. So if you force march these poor kids through Caesar, it breaks their hearts. They come away thinking, boy, I'm glad that's over. Hmm. But if you give them something that they can progress in and feel a sense of accomplishment, then it's likely that they'll have a fond memory of it. They, they never take more courses, but at least they'll have a fond memory. And they'll have read something 
a piece of literature that is significant. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I, I feel like the answer to this was embedded somewhat in, in how you responded to the last one, but let's get specific. Who should consider purchasing this book? Well, it could be... Well, I, as I said, I published the book on... Uh, I got the, bu- published, the book published on Mark through Bocchese Carducci. Mm-hmm. And they are pretty much an academic press, and they try to sell to homeschoolers partly, but mostly to college professors. Well, college professors aren't going to touch a biblical text with a 10-foot pole in mm. any of their classes. So it's, it didn't sell very well. So I approached Circe, which is well known for having this uh, very vigorous and active homeschooling network, and said, would you be interested in a text like this? Because it seems to me that a lot of the curriculum in homeschool networks are Christian-based. There's a lot of Latin, and so it would be a nice nice plug in there. So there's one source uh, that I think would be, you know, that people would, would benefit from it, would might like to look at it, would be homeschooling uh, individuals, people who are doing it on their own or associated with some organized structural experience. Uh, and then autodidacts, people who mm-hmm. are teaching themselves Latin, and they don't really want to go to the academic Lagamos readers, which is published again by Bocchese Carducci, because those are in snippets. And sometimes the authors are very challenging, like Catullus, uh, Horace. Those may be beyond what somebody can do on their own. But this would be a good option for them if they want to continue their Latin without feeling overwhelmed and getting crushed. So Mm. autodidacts and um, homeschooling, Christian-based um, classical curricula would be a, a place that this could be useful. Hmm. Uh, and again, I, I feel like you've answered some of this next question already, but I'd love to hear even Good. more about it. Uh, what needs do you hope that this reader will meet for classical educators at home and in classical Christian schools? And I'd, I'd actually love to hear from both of you on this, but Dale, I'll hand it off to you first. Okay, well, I'll try to be brief. <laughs> There's nothing worse than the love affair a professor has with a microphone, so I'm trying to <laughs> rein it in here. Um, Good thing uh, you're fun, actually. So. <laughs> Well, I, I would say the benefit would be, of course, just to increase your knowledge of, of Latin. Um, so that's the, the obvious um, use of it. But another is, at least with the, with the, God, with the, uh, with the book of Acts, a lot of uh, Christians have never read it. Hmm. Um, one thing I, that I have been able to do with this is at the Presbyterian Church, which I attend, I teach the adult Sunday school class because they heard that I'm publishing this stuff. And they said, well, let's get him to do it. And so I've I found that uh, a lot of them just never knew what was in Acts at all. And, and it's, not to, it's not a criticism at all. Acts is not a very well-read text in Christian, Christian literature, and, and it's not very often the source of liturgical materials either. So it would also, because I do the entire thing, uh, verse by verse, all the way from the beginning to the end, it would uh, it, it could serve do- a double purpose. It could um, help somebody improve their Latin, but also it gets them familiar with a really important piece of Christian history and Christian literature. Hmm. That's great. Wes, any other comments, thoughts on this? Well, I certainly agree with that, and I just give it, get a different angle on basically the same thing, especially for um, uh, for 
people who are teaching Latin at home or in Christian schools and don't have a lot of Latin experience themselves, which is very often the case. It's it's unfortunate, but perfectly understandable and even necessary with the with the with the explosive growth of the classical Christian education movement. We have a lot of people recognizing that Latin needs to be taught, um, but you know where where do you find Latin scholars to come teach it? And so it's 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 moms and dads and volunteers and and underpaid teachers in the schools and at home who are trying to teach their, their kids Latin. And so any tool you can give them is going to be a, trem- a tremendous help. And this is a great tool for moving them, as Dale said earlier, for moving them beyond basic grammar and intermediate Latin and into actually reading texts uh, at, at, the, at the level that this, uh, that this book is, is at. Um, many of the Latin teachers, uh, especially homeschoolers and, and um, a great many Christian school teachers are going to be kind of at sea. And so this gives them a way to continue giving the, the students the tools they need to the transition from being taught directly by a teacher from starting to be taught by the text. And so Dale's got tremendous helps in terms of the vocabulary and, this, and the great introduction he's got to the background and the critical perspective on the text and so on. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a stepping stone and it, and, uh, it helps people who, um, whose expertise, if they claim to have any at all, leaves off a lot earlier than some college Latin professor. Hmm. That's really helpful. So I have a few questions about the book, y'all. I'm, sure. I'm not a New Testament scholar or a converser in ancient languages, uh, but even I know that the book of Acts was not written in Latin, but in Greek. So why Latin? Let's see. Well, that's a, a good question. And th- the simple answer is, uh, there aren't a lot of people who read Greek. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. Um, and also, I was trying to fill a need in the Latin curriculum. Mm-hmm. And that's, I thought that was a big, a big gap. Now, it is true to, to, uh, to progress in your point a little bit. It does create a certain limit on the critical notes that I could make about the text, mm-hmm. because if you really want to get down into the theology of Mark or of Acts, you really need to be looking at the Greek. But that doesn't mean that you can't benefit enormously from reading it. In it, it th- th- this could be written in Icelandic, mm. but if you read it carefully and study word for word, as this text requires you to do, you can d- develop an enormous amount of knowledge and information about what's in Acts. Uh, again, if you wanted to look at the theology, you'd really have to be looking at the individual words that are used, and that would require uh, some Greek. Um, I, I look at it this way. I tell my students this this analogy. Uh, studying a book without knowing the original language is like being a tourist in a country. You can spend a lot of time there, and you can learn an awful lot about the country. You can spend a month in France and come away with a really good sort of understanding of the basics of uh, French history and French culture and French people. But if you want to dig deeper into it, then you need to be speaking French and, and living there and trying to get to be part of the culture. Now, that doesn't mean to denigrate uh, what you, the knowledge and the insight that you can acquire through a translation. It just means that you need to have a certain rational uh, appreciation of the limits of how far you can push your knowledge and, and, and kind of limit the things that you can say about it. But, uh, so that's, what was the question again? Oh, why Latin and not Greek? (laughs) Uh, That's because I thought that the most critical need for classical curricula and teachers of classical curricula uh, is to have a a Latin book at this point. Mm -hmm. And and if 
if you think there's a need out there for a companion volume in Greek, I'd be perfectly happy to produce one. That would be so fascinating, wouldn't it? Oh, bug in the ear. Well, I've, okay. I've already written the notes. All I have to do is just change the language and change oh, a few I words here and there. I love that idea. Okay, so Wes, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, we hadn't talked on offline about this particular question, but we... Uh, Dale mentioned that this he, he's not the translator. This, this is the Vulgate. So can you give us maybe yeah. just a, a few background notes on the Vulgate, what it is and why it was created and um, well, yeah, why we sure. have it? Um, and, and, and this will actually uh, um, enable me to say, say something. I want to follow up on what Dale was saying. Uh, another uh, um, uh, tremendous value of studying the biblical text in Latin is that that's the language in which all of medieval Christendom knew the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greek, Greek, well, there's a very little knowledge of Greek in, in, in medieval, medieval Europe, but one of the huge focuses that we in the classical Christian education movement try to, uh, you know, however we perceive that, but one of the things we try to do is to help our students to participate in this, in a, in a great tradition, the tradition that made the, um, you know, old Western culture. And, uh, and so, uh, um, the um, West, the Western European tradition, which were the heirs of, uh, received the, the 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 biblical text, which which tremendously shaped their culture and therefore ours in the, in the form of Latin, not Greek. So Greek doesn't come along until the, until the Renaissance. But by then, there's a huge tr- Christian tradition in Europe that's been shaped by this by the Vulgate. So to study, uh, you know, uh, Mark or the Acts or any portion of the Vulgate text. Uh, in the Latin is to study in the language that Europe received it in, um, which is uh, um, no no reason to denigrate the Greek, of course, because that's the original, and the Greek text was being used heavily off in the, in the Byzantine East. But um, So studying the, the Vulgate text is part of studying the Western tradition. And this text, you asked uh, um, for basic background, I think probably most people know that the Vulgate text that we're talking about in the Middle Ages was produced by Jerome around 400 A.D., now, there were earlier Latin texts, but that was really the big one that came to shape the Western, uh, uh, the Western Church's text and and all of the Christian world that was influenced by by, by hearing and reading and knowing about the biblical uh, text itself. Mm-hmm. No, that's really helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's right. I mean, the, the Greek text was around, but not everybody read Greek. And so, in the starting about in the second century AD, there were ad hoc Latin translations that were being produced in various, it could have just been in various churches, uh, not necessarily in regions. And so, there were a number of old, or they're called Old Latin, Old Latin text. Uh, and in the fourth century, how was it 395, Pope Damasus, Pope Damasus said to Jerome, okay, look, we can't have this nonsense going on any longer. Everybody reading from a different text. Would you please put it all together into one text? And so mostly what Jerome did was to edit the old Latin texts and then turn it into one version. And it, it is kind of interesting also that um, for a long time, for like 400 years, people didn't like this newfangled Latin that Jerome had produced, and they mm-hmm. preferred the old, the old Latin, the way it sounded, the text of it, in the same way that some people will still prefer the King James Version, mm-hmm. even though some of the words are meaningless to, to contemporaries or they don't understand the full sense of the original. They want that old sound. And it wasn't until, as Wes said, you get into the medieval period that really Jerome becomes the dominant translation. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a story, Dale probably knows the details of it. I just remember the rough outlines, but it goes something like 
uh, I think perhaps in somewhere in, in North Africa, maybe around Augustine's time, uh, uh, churches that had been used to hearing the, 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 the word read in their liturgies uh, in the old Latin when the new Jerome translation started being promulgated, um, some priest somewhere read the scripture about Jonah and the gourd plant growing up, and the new translation uh, had a different word for the gourd than the old one, and the church broke out of riots and burst down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> some things never change. That oh, that's great. So true. So, was the old Latin, because I don't know this, was the old Latin, did it have. Um, you know, people like the King James Version because it has this grandeur, this majesty, this, you right. know, kind of old feeling to it. Was it like that with the Old Latin versus Jerome's Latin? Well, you know, actually it was precisely the opposite. Interesting. Because the, the earlier forms, they were written by people who were just just doing it, who had no training, no specific ability to do it. And we do have, I don't know, was it 40 fragments of the old Latin texts? And they use really preposterous words that are just transliterations of the Greek sometimes or made up words to get the sense of the Greek over. And so it it sounds, it's, it's rough, it's chunky, uh, mm. the words are bizarre sounding, but that might have been part of its appeal. Interesting. That they liked it. And I wish I could think of some specific examples. I didn't know we were going to get into this. I didn't either. There are some words. Um, oh, gee. I, I, I'll probably think of it after we're done with the of interview course. and I'll email them to you because I can't let it go. But Perfect. there were you know, words that just were totally made up and weren't Latin at all to, to try to approximate what the Greek was saying. And, and I think um, there, there's a, another difference too. The old, the old Latin, um, Dale can correct me here if I'm wrong, but the old Latin was generally a translation into Latin from the Septuagint or the, or the, or the, or the New Testament from, from the Greek, uh, where Jerome's translation of the Old Testament was directly from the Hebrew. And I don't know that that had been done before. And Jerome uh, made himself knowledgeable in Hebrew, living off in, in the Holy Land, I think in a monastery in Bethlehem or something. And he studied with right. Jewish priests there and so on. And so that, 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 that shaped the language uh, of, the, of the Latin that he rendered you know, the, the text into. And I, and I think, uh, Dale Kreckman is too, but I think that he uh, also made up some Latin words based uh, th that he didn't think he could find uh, um, existing equivalents for in the Greek. Mm -hmm. um, he made up some words in Latin that, uh, that he thought better reflected the Hebrew. And then that shaped, uh, some of that actually shaped developing theology of Western Christendom. Yes. Called Shakespeare. Yeah. Right. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's, uh, Jerome set himself up in a little, well, he wanted to be a monk, but he couldn't quite bring himself to do it. So he, <laughs> he, he, he had this huge cave and going in there, people would say, it looks like, it looks like a huge uh, public library in here. He's got a books <laughs> and servants and a little sleeping area and, and a kitchen for him. And the, the, yeah, his little uh, cave was called uh, the Eagle's Nest, Eagle's Nest. And then, that's where he did his work. But yeah, he most uh, renders renditions of the Old Testament into Latin were done from the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which was produced in the second century BC for the sake of Jews who couldn't read Hebrew anymore. And that was a lot of them. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. All right. So one of the many reasons, uh, 
that I invited Wes to join us today, other than ingratiating myself further so that I can someday sample his barbecue, uh, was to hear some shared stories from the two of you about the settings of the Book of Acts. Sometimes these things can remain very abstract for us Americans who are separated from the geography of where these these places, uh, these people lived, uh, which is why I think that what you do with your tours is really important, really important, especially for young people who are, you know, thinking about themselves and feel like this is so separated from their, you know, real life, so to speak. But to right. take them to these places matters a lot. Yeah. Uh, so you've traveled together with students to experience some of the places where the apostles lived and traveled and established the lived experiences of our faith that would become then the teachings and traditions of the church. So where have you been specific to the Book of Acts? Have you been to the Eagle's Nest Cave? Have you been to any of these places that, that we talk about in Acts? And I'd love to hear some about those experiences. <laughs> We, we went to a restaurant called the Eagle's Nest in Greece. Okay, that totally counts. <laughs> so, you so nailed there's one. it. Yep. There's one. Uh, well, you know, we don't do any uh, North African or Holy Land sites. Mm -hmm. And we don't get too far. We never did get too far into Turkey when we used to go. Okay. Uh, but we have been... You've been to, to Ephesus? Do you take students to Ephesus? A yeah, couple times yeah. we went to Ephesus, right, Ras? Yeah, Ephesus and Pergamum and, and uh, one or two of the western seven cities. Uh, we, we stopped in Miletus, and mm. Paul summons the yeah, elders from Ephesus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. we did not go to Malta. No, Malta. That's, that, yes. that's in Malta where that happens. We have been to Crete. Uh, yeah. oh, when Paul is being uh, taken from the Holy Land uh, to Rome, his ship lands briefly in a port in Crete. Uh, but then they say, well, this is not really big, but they really can't accommodate a ship of, what was it, almost 200 people. So they tried to get into another port, and that's when the storm hit and then drew them out to sea. And that port is right near Matala, which is that uh, resort. Remember, Wes, when we were in Crete and we went down and to that beach? Yeah. And yeah. part of Greece after yeah. we, we went to Knossos and then we went to Festos. And then a little bit yeah. further down, we stopped at the beach and the kids were swimming. Yeah. Yeah. That's right near Fairhaven, mm. which was uh, where he, their ship. I, I think that is Fairhaven. The archaeologists say, no, no, you dopes. It's on the other side of the hill. Says, Why wouldn't they stop here? Look at this. You got a beach. <laughs> it's fairer. It's a fairer haven. Exactly. Yeah. That's um, the job of archaeologists is to argue. <laughs> well, it's crazy. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, we went to uh, Philippi, which is where the first European convert was, Lydia. And we did that only once. We got to that area once. Yes. Yeah. And uh, one of the girls on the tour was named Lydia. Hmm. And so yeah. we, we hired a local guide because I'd never been to that site before, site before. And she showed us where the prison was, where Paul was held. You know, the earthquake came and released them. And then there's a little stream where Paul went, assuming that there was going to be a Sabbath meeting there of local Jews, and it didn't turn out. But they did run into Lydia, who was a Roman woman, very powerful Roman woman, who sold purple dye, I think. So she had her own company. And you can imagine Paul and these Near Eastern guys who've never seen a woman of that kind of power and stature before. <laughs> this woman come up to them as if they were equals. Hmm. Um, so we had a picture of Lydia sitting near the 
the wellhead near the stream. Yeah. And of uh, course, the, the students always really like standing on the Areopagus in Athens, you know, where yes. Paul's famous sermon in Acts 17. And there's a big plaque on the rock that has the sermon. In yeah. yeah. We always take a picture there. That's right. Yeah. We stopped in uh, Thessaloniki a few years ago, but you know, there's not much left of the Christian remains of, well, there are Christian remains, but it's mainly from the Byzantine period, uh, like the big rotunda of Galerius. Uh, but we did last time, Wes, we went to Berea. Yeah. Yeah. And which is where yeah. Paul, you know, Paul was working his way into Greece through Northern Greece and he got chased out of Philippi. He actually got whipped in Philippi. Uh, then local Jews stirred up a riot in Thessaloniki, and so they sent him off to nearby Berea. And in Berea, he found a much more receptive audience. They listened politely, and they said, well, we'll check it out, Paul. We'll, we'll do and, and you get that famous quotation, um, be like the Bereans who mm -hmm. study their scripture day and night to see whether these things are true. Mm. So we saw a little monument to uh, Paul there in Berea. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah. Corinth. Corinth. We always stop in Corinth. Right. A beautiful site. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, a, it's yeah. a Roman site. It was, it's more like what it would have been in Paul's time than it was originally the Greek Corinth. And then a lot of, this, a lot of the, the, uh, the, the, the pre-Christian sites, we see the classical sites, temples and, you know, for and amphitheaters and so on. We see, we see those things, and they not only have their, their story from the classical age that we study, you know, from Plato and Socrates and Herodotus and all the classical Greeks, um, but, uh, but they often are sites of uh, 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 Christian, you might say, um, you know, claims later on. You know, for example, the, the Parthenon, everybody studies the Parthenon as classical history, but not as many people uh, know the long, long Christian history of using the Parthenon as a Christian mm -hmm. church. And so many of the temples we look at have not only their classical history, but a long, long stretch of Christian history as Christianity spreads through Greece and starts taking over the empire. Hmm. Right, and that's what that's what's so cool about having Wes along on, on the trips is that he's this authority on Byzantine history and Byzantine <laughs> iconography. So a lot of the sites that we see have substantial Byzantine remains. For example, right outside of the city of Sparta in the Peloponnese, etched on the side of a mountain, is this undulating city uh, called Mistras. Uh, which was built, you know, when the the Byzantines were kicked out of Constantinople by the uh, Franks. Franks was it the Franks who kicked them out? Yeah. Or the Venetians, or well, anyway, that one of the uh, Crusades went through and drove them out, and so they said, "Well, we need another capital," and they came down there and they built uh, this this amazing um, city that was again, it was just etched on the side of a mountain as it, it goes up and down. And it was a major, major um, power uh, throughout the, the rest, of, rest of Christian history. And we got to see that. Hmm. Uh, what was it? Last time, wasn't it? Yeah. We yeah. Last trip. And so you've got, you go into the side of these churches, uh, which is amazing iconography, which is right there. I mean, there aren't guards all over the place. You can, and there aren't <laughs> a lot of people. You just walk right up and you're one-on-one -on -one with this, incredible this incredible work of art and then having west there to explain what the iconography meant of course is very helpful 
Hmm. Then one of the one of the uh, following up on that, one of the things that really helps make connections to students and break down that kind of, you know, airtight wall between their classical studies and their Christian studies is you go to a place. We've uh, several times we've taken the students to um, uh, this incredible monastic site in central Greece called Meteora, which is these monasteries, uh, half a dozen monasteries built on these gigantic thousand foot tall, you know, inaccessible columns of, of rock, just spectacular. And, uh, and now you can access them and you go up there with the other tourists during the certain times the monasteries let you in. And, and on some of these monasteries, and this shows up in other places too, but there's a really spectacular instance of this there. In their iconography on the outside of the church, they have images of, of uh, some early saints but before them and right with them, they have images in the same iconographic style, but without halos to show that they're saints. You have images of these, of these great pagan authors, you know, Herodotus and, you know, and, and, uh, and Thucydides and Plato and Socrates, uh, showing that they were considered by the early church to be, uh, in some ways, preparers and precursors to the Christian right. message that would come along and say, no, the pagans weren't entirely wrong. They get a lot of things right, and these guys helped pave the way. And that yeah. puts things together in students' minds that otherwise wouldn't join. Yeah, that, that, one of our favorite spots, Wes, and not my favorite spots, is in the Grand Meteora. And we stand in front of this huge... Um, uh, is it a mosaic? It's not a mosaic. It's just a painting, wall painting. And you have like nine classical authors lined up next to each other, a little image of them with a book or something. And then a quotation that's supposed to come from one of their works, uh, which explains how they, how they were precursors to the, to the revelations, which were going to come. And it's all written in Greek. And so Wes and I stand there and we're translating the Greek. <laughs> <laughs> and in the meantime, everybody else has been scattered. They're off looking at other things. But yeah, we've, we've worked through that panel what, two or three times, I think. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, from my point of view as, as a scholar, they don't document any of that. You can't find out where, <laughs> where Homer actually said that there was a son coming who would place Achilles. And, but still, it, it shows something about what they believed at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, and it, it provides for the students and even for, for the, the two of you working in the classical renewal, working with ancient languages um, and, and reading these in uh, their original form, which is a remarkable thing to be in the places where those things happened. Um, as you said, Wes, it, it does, it unites, it, it, it knits our inner lives to that information that's coming at us and helps yeah. it from being abstract so that we know yeah. we are incorporated into this tradition. Yeah. That, that was very well said. Do you mind if we record you saying that and then post <laughs> it on our website next time we advertise a tour? Please do. Please Why do. Why don't you come one of these times? I would love <laughs> to, right? I'm ready to sign up right go. now. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you a chance here in a couple of minutes to share with families uh, how they can get involved in these tours uh, sure. and find other resources that the two of you have created. But before that, um, we've come to the penultimate and perhaps most hard-hitting and significant topic of conversation that we're going to cover today, uh, the pinnacle of this important conversation. I better pour myself another cup of coffee. No, you're going to need that. You're going to need it. So here's my question. Does one wrap brisket when it hits the stall in the smoker or not? And the answer is yes. And the answer is also no. 
it's a huge point of controversy. How can that be? <laughs> this is this requires some classical philosophy. How can yes and no be the answer? Well, I'm trying to think of a way to draw a parallel with classical studies and and the, and the Latin reader. Now, you know, can I can I raise a? I, 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 there's something I must say. Please. We were supposed to have this meeting last week, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we really want to take cooking advice? <laughs> From the man who had food poisoning last week. This is because we weren't eating my barbecue. (laughs) (laughs) Say it. Well, we just got back from Austin. We were in Austin last weekend. um, And we had Aaron Franklin's barbecue. Um, I know it was. It really was just so good uh, for for our listeners who are scratching their heads right now he's uh texas barbecue king he did the master chef class yeah. the master he's a saint in the barbecue world he's a saint yeah. in the barbecue yeah. world like he's he's like saint john chrysostom level saint <laughs> exactly right yeah so we're not talking about life. like may 6th third saint down so like um so yeah no he is uh so and yeah it was amazing and we have you know we we have a long way to go although wes you 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 might you might be canonized here from what i hear but i've not sampled your work yet (laughs) in my my county yeah i i I fawn at aaron franklin street you know (laughs) all right and dale you are a Okay, talk to me about your, tell us about your small engine oh. hobbies. Well, again, this is a hobby that, what that was, this is born out of irritation because I couldn't <laughs> find anybody to fix my stuff or who wouldn't cheat me. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a good, you know, I've got a good Christian heart and I believe what mm-hmm. I'm told, but man, after a while, you just realize these people, they're, they don't know what they're doing. And so I began, have mercy. I, I took, a, oh, oh, really? You have some experiences, huh? No, please. I just need you in my life. I might, I have, I have things that need to be fixed. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't find anybody. Anyway. So about uh, seven years ago, I started taking classes in small engine repair at a local community college and just kept at it. Got to know some mechanics in town whom I can call if things get out of hand and I need some extra advice. And now I'm just sort of, I started out by fixing people's stuff from the church and, uh, and I said, okay, whatever you want to donate to the church for my service, just throw it into the into the collection plate. And they thought that was pretty cool. And then I put up a little advertisement on Craigslist or something. And I fixed like five different types of small engines uh, a week. And I'm getting a little better at it. Sometimes I go a little too far. Like today, I've got a zero-turn 52-inch deck lawnmower with the mm. hydraulic pumps all taken apart and I don't know have any idea how to put them back together <laughs> that's so, amazing yeah, I don't so know I what you it. just said but that sounds really cool Dude, I feel his pain yeah yeah so my only advice the only advice to small en- on small engine is is this non-ethanol gas and change the air filter and make sure that the oil level is proper if you do that you'll never have to talk to a small engine mechanic ever Excellent advice. There you go. Excellent. This is good. You know, it's so funny, the uh, the absent-minded professor myth. Like, I'm sure that that's true somewhere, that there really is some guy sitting with, like, a tweed coat, you know, worn through the elbows who only thinks about Latin. But uh, my experience with people like you is that you're just – 
so interesting. You you are very connected to the concrete and physical as well as to the life of the mind. And that's, we are whole people. So we grow in one area, we grow in the other. So um, I'm, I'm interested in your hobbies as well. You know, you know, it, it is true. I mean, what you said is that you have people who think that it's cool to be detached from the world. But these classical authors that we read and study, they were really at a level that was much more elemental and connected to the world around them. Mm -hmm. And the best authors, Plato, for example, Lucretius, certainly, they're able to draw analogies and metaphors from mechanical things, from things in the world around them, which is, you know, lost on somebody who just, it does nothing but, you know, smoke his, smoke his pipe and, right. and toddle around in the library. Mm -hmm. So the, the classical authors were much more bound to the physical world than, uh, than the people who study them are generally, mm -hmm. I, I find. Right. Well, it's, well, it's, it's interesting to yeah. see some, a lot of, uh, I don't know about a lot, but some, some modern people you know, realizing that loss and trying to say something about it. You know, people like, you know, Matthew Crawford with his book, Shopcraft and Soulcraft, whatever you think of that book, people like that, um, you know, or people who read Wendell Berry and so on. You know, there are people who do recognize still and try to recover that, that, um, that union of the, of, of, of the, cerebellum and the hand you know, that you know, right. the physical and the intellectual that the loss of either one of which is a real loss for the human person right right but uh, in I, in the classical tradition to work is to pray right and that's very very much yeah. yeah and even and and even before the monastics began saying things like that you know the the, the ancient greeks and romans you know, they not only are they talking about you know the metaphysical and the transcendent but they're talking about how to you know the, what what how to, how to cultivate your, your Sabine farm, you know, and how delightful it is to go out and, you know, get your fingers in the soil or watch your slaves get their fingers in the soil, but to be connected to the, to the earth in a way that's, that, that, that helps bolster what you're doing with your mind. Yeah, yeah. Unless we forget, Odysseus uh, entered yes. a, a, a contest with the other, was it the suitors? Wes, you're much more familiar with the Homeric text than I am. Doesn't it have a plowing contest to see who can plow the most in, in a day? Uh, uh, yeah, that sounds familiar. It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and in, the, in the contest, he has, you know, the, uh, obviously in both the, in both the Homeric epics, um, he's done with this brilliant man of mind and he can think his way out of situations in a way other people can't, but he's also a preeminent warrior and, mm -hmm. and this, you know, discus thrower and a speaker of words and a doer of deeds. That's right. So, there we That's go. That's right. No, it's good. All right. So here's, here's where I want to hear uh, our listeners are, I'm sure are curious. What projects are y'all working on these days? How can our listeners find you and find out, more about specifically these tours or anything else that that can help them well i'll let wes take that uh, we advertise wes's <laughs> tours well I, I have my own people that i get in touch with but we advertise them on wes's website don't tell yeah, us wes. I, well um uh in, in terms of getting getting in touch i mean they can contact me um school of classical tutorials you can do a search on that and my website is woefully behind but the contact box works uh, i have a i have a um um, a project I've had for years called Hill Abbey, where I have students come to the farm where we live. We, get, we live in a working farm that dad and I run, and we've got outbuildings and beautiful property and so on. We have students come and live with us for a couple weeks in the summer and read, you know, early church fathers and so on. And so uh, Hill Abbey is a big project. And if people look up, um, um, uh, you know, Hill Abbey, they'll, they'll see also a, a website devoted to that with a contact form. Uh, 
So they can they can get a hold of me through or or through Roman Roads Media. People can get a hold of me through that. That's that's the company that produces the Old Western Culture video series, the four year series of lectures for on the great books that I do. Um, I had to get a hold of of, uh, of 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 Dale and contact me or contact sure. whatever things he mentions. Yeah, yeah. We we do usually. We I don't think we've ever done two tours in a single year, have we? It's no, only one yet. tour a year. Yeah, yeah. One, we tried to do a couple, uh, but then we ended up consolidating them into one. But yeah, we'll do one tour a year, and we usually get that thing organized in about November for the summer. Yeah. yeah. And it's usually what ten yeah. to fourteen days or so. Yeah. And how old are the students that travel with you? What are where are you guys at with that? <laughs> Anywhere from nine. We've had nine to about eighty-nine. Perfect. Seriously, yeah, I yeah. Love that. yeah. We had a, a little girl. Uh, I, I think her name was Amy. Yeah, and yeah, and she. I wonder what's happened to her. It's been long enough that she's all she, grown up now. And she's a, she and her husband were staying with us just last night. They live back oh, east, but they were on their way yeah. through. And I told them I'd be talking with uh, you guys today. And she said, "Say, say hi to Doctor Griff." Oh yeah, uh, well, she's, doing, she's doing just doing tremendous, and she remembers that tour like the back of her hand and how, what a hard time she gave to us. She was, oh yeah. I remember we used to torment her and, and she, and, and, but she was amazing. She, she gave as good up. as she got. She, she, she was, she did. <laughs> and, 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 and her mother, as I recall, was a little bit more proper. She didn't really like all that carrying on. And, and uh, toward the end of the tour, I noticed that Amy wasn't sitting next to us at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! That's right. that yeah, but she so would have us little, anyway. So we've had anywhere from nine to eighty-nine. Um, All right, that's yeah. really yeah. exciting. Yeah. I am counting down. I mean, practically counting down the days until I can send my kids <laughs> to Hill Abbey over the summer. So Jack Fantastic. is fourteen, so he's he's oh, slowly approaching. That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, Wes, Dale, thank you kindly for being here with us on the Forma podcast. We are so grateful for your work. You both have certainly contributed to the great work of the classical education renewal worldwide. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, you can pre-order your, no, actually just order your copy at this point of the Acts of the Apostles from the Searcy Institute at www.searcyinstitute.org. And while you're there, please browse around. It is well into school year planning season and the Searcy Institute offers a myriad of great resources for your school and your homeschool needs. Uh, but particularly look for that Latin reader, the Acts of the Apostles. And don't forget to subscribe to Forma Journal and our online Forma Review, which offers great content sent straight to your inbox weekly. And you can find us at www.formajournal.substack.com. And also, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, like, and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big impact on the platform, and we'd appreciate it. Uh, And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on the Forma Podcast, where we will continue to explore the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 